Namo tassa bhagavato rato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato rato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato rato samma sambuddhasa My Dharma friends, this evening I'm going to talk about the third noble truth, the truth of cessation of suffering, or we can say uh, the ultimate happiness. I think this is the good news. Uh, one time I was in Uganda, I met somebody. Who was surprised to uh, to see that I'm a monk, and he didn't know even about Buddhism, and he told me, "What what's Buddhism? Tell me more about it. What do you teach?" I say, I replied, "We teach suffering. Cause of suffering, I saw I saw her frowning. End of suffering, which is happiness, and way to happiness. I say I like the third one." <laughs> but what's very interesting is from a Buddhist perspective it's the understanding of suffering that we start to begin to experience happiness we can't cut it out and edit it out <laughs> we can try but it won't bring uh, happiness if we just bury it The Buddha, I think, was an amazing person. <laughs> really, I really, I like him very much. <laughs> Not because I'm called Buddha Rakita. I don't know how my teacher chose the name, but I like him very much. Just like Isaac Newton uh, in England found out uh, discovered the law of gravity. I don't know whether the second or forgotten, but anyway, you know that law of gravity. It's amazing. People are seeing apples falling, but they didn't know the reason why they're falling. <laughs> it's amazing. And people in India also, they were suffering, but they could not figure out the actual cause. Others we are speculating the cause, self-caused, other-caused. As we'll see sometime, uh, why the Buddha taught this. There were so many speculation, speculative views. And the Buddha said, yes, suffering is dependent on arising. It depends on causes and conditions. For me, I be, before I became a Buddhist, and uh, I did, actually I'm the one, also I was one of the people who didn't know about Buddhism, actually. I was born as a Roman Catholic until I went to India, and I saw the monks, and I started hanging out with these guys. They were very happy, actually. I started hanging around with them, and they told me about Buddhism. I said, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> 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 Took me to the temple. <laughs> 
I don't know this kind of stuff. But in my first year at the university in India, uh, we used to have news papers coming in a hostel. Uh, one time I read the news that there is a snowfall in Shimula, northern India. That was 1990. And I've never seen snow. I said, wow, this wonderful opportunity. So after my exams, of course, I got a bus. Out of craving, out of desire to see snow. It's like four hours, I don't remember actually, from Chandigarh to Shimla. So a good four hours drive on Indian buses and mountains, going, navigating corners and negotiating some of them, really cliffs down there. So anyway, I say, what, are, what am I getting into? This is so steep, you know, those who have been to India, <laughs> going to Shimla and Dalazo, very hilly places, you know. But anyway, finally, finally, I arrived in Shimla, and I saw snowflakes. Before even the bus arrived at the bus station, I some, it stopped, actually. And I got off the bus with my camera, those cameras with the negatives, so I, that you roll like this. And uh, so I got out with the camera. I had the warm clothes jacket and my camera, so I start taking, it was sunny actually with snowflakes, I start taking pictures, I started opening my zip and snowflakes were going here I've never seen snow except in a refrigerator in Uganda <laughs> and those are called ice cubes I opened here, had gloves everywhere, I was full of snow these Indians were looking at this African guy who's just playing in snow. <laughs> it was sunny, craving. I was full of snow. It melted here. And soon as it started melting, I started suffering. It was so cold. I even dropped my camera. I really dropped it. It was so cold. I was so suffering. I was suffering, really. <laughs> and I said, oh... Why am I suffering? It was craving to see snow. So since then, I've never opened my zip for snow to go. That was the first time to connect suffering with its cause. I mean, I had suffered before, but there was no immediate connection between suffering and the cause of suffering. That was really very immediate, really. So all the time I went in the snow, I made sure that clause. Of course, when I was working at IMS here, and a guy called Pascal who took me to ski around here, but I never opened my zip. <laughs> so this was really uh, something that uh, I, re- I noticed before I became a Buddhist. But when I became a Buddhist and I learned about, I learned about the Four Noble Truth, it made sense. I could re- relate very well to suffering and the cause of suffering. Now, uh, the Buddha, when he taught the third noble truth, uh, the Pali word is called Dukkha Niroda, 
The Pali word niroda is very interesting. Roda means prison, confinement, and ni means no prison. So life is great if you are not confined, actually. When you are out of the prison, we are all inundated with the prison. Prisons of greed, hatred, delusion, fear, suffering. So this is a beautiful word I like, actually, the word niroda. And nibbana, again, already this vocabulary was there in Indian society. Uh, nibbana, the word nibbana, nibuto, nibuti, to cool, hmm? to cool. In this, in this case, it would be cooling the defilements, which are like fire. Like any other Buddha's teaching, we need to always ask, why, why did the Buddha teach Nibbana in this way? Why didn't he teach something else? But it's very interesting. The Buddha taught Nibbana based on what was existing in society. And his teaching was and is a critical response to the mutually exclusive views, or what we would say binary opposing views. On one side, we have those people who believed in uh, what you call eternalism. That means they believed in a soul that it will go on forever and forever like birds flying from one tree to another. So the, that was a view that was held, held at that time. And still, it, it's being held that way, that uh, there is a, a, what to call eternal existence forever, but the soul just keep on coming from one body to another to another. As you know, the Buddha, that's not what it is. That's what he's not teaching. And on another side, there was also another belief which is called self-annihilation, uh, where people believed there is a self or soul, but at the moment of death, everything is kaput, finished, no more. The Buddha said, no, that's not, the, that's not true. <laughs> so he wanted to stay out of those views, the two opposing views, mutually exclusive views. And what he taught is uh, not complete annihilation, not continued existence, not the cessation of life, but the cessation of craving. The cessation of craving, the end of craving. That's what he taught. So to understand Nibbana, we need to really look at also uh, what the Buddha taught. Uh, of course, the first noble truth, Rebecca gave a talk about that. Uh, suffering in all its forms. The cause of suffering, I think some of us, we've been talking about it. And uh, now I'm talking about the third, because it just falls like that, the way how the Buddha taught it is like that, that if craving is the cause, so you just remove the cause. This is very scientific. I'm just going to quote exactly from the, uh, what the Buddha taught, but I'll review also the second noble truth. 
that's what he said, it's craving, which produces rebecoming, rebirth, accompanied by passionate greed. And finding delights now here, now there, there, craving for sensual pleasures, craving for the existence, craving for existence, which is uh, really is craving associated with eternalistic views, and craving for non-existence, which is self-annihilation. So that was, according to Buddha, the cause, and of course the task of the second noble truth we need to abandon. We, didn't, uh, we need to abandon the cause. So the way Buddha now taught the, the third noble truth, which we have to realize, he said like this, it's the complete cessation of that very craving. Giving it up. Relinquishing it. Uh, and then liberating oneself from it. Detachment oneself from it. So we need to totally detach ourselves from this kind of craving. I have noticed most people want to really overcome uh, suffering and uh, its causes. But it's not easy. (laughs) It's not easy. We keep on get hooked. With this craving for sensual pleasures, so in many ways we don't want to get rid of the cause, or we don't want to get rid of craving, but we want to be free. Is that possible? I heard that many people. This is a common saying: many people want to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. You ask people, they want to, everyone want to go to heaven. You ask them, do you want to die? They say, oh, no. So it seems that also we need to work on our craving if we are to attain happiness. If we are to attain happiness, we have to overcome craving. But craving doesn't arise alone. It always arises with other mental defilements like ignorance, delusion. In my case, going to Shimla, to Sisno, I was deluded. I was ignorant of the snow. I don't, I don't know. I've never seen it. Actually, for me, it was not snow alone because in Uganda, you know, we don't have snow. Maybe mountain runs all, but I've never been there. But also summer. <laughs> it's amazing. When I was ignorant about summer, I remember arriving at Bombay Airport and they say the plane had mechanical disorder. So I had to stay one night there in the airport. About 2 p.m. the next day, again the plane had mechanical disorder. So then they told us we are going to leave at in the evening. So about uh, noon time, I went outside the airport just from air-conditioned place and I went out and I did like this uh, hot blanket of 
air hit my head like this. I freaked out, actually. I said, what's this? <laughs> I've never seen this. I went and asked a Ugandan I traveled with. She was going to another university. I said, come, come, come. There's something here. Come and see. And she came. Again, I said, what's here, actually? Because inside is air-conditioned. Outside is the hot, thick air that I've never experienced in Uganda. Uganda's very mild temperature, like 20, 25, uh, 21, Celsius. Very good weather, 28, 29. No winter, no summer. We just read in a novel, oh, in my winter holidays in Netherlands, <laughs> in my summer holidays in England. It's a what summer, actually? We have no clue. <laughs> so... Uh, I asked one Indian, what's, what's in front here? I don't know, there's something here. <laughs> he told me it's, it's summer. <laughs> it's hot. Ignorance. The work of ignorance. Sometimes it's very embarrassing, actually. <laughs> somebody to grow up without having known how really actual experience of summer. So for the first time in my life in India, I really experienced summer and winter. (laughs) But ignorance in terms of getting into the snow, it was ignorance. I ignored and of course craving. So along with that, there was craving and that makes it worse. (laughs) <laughs> yes, you see when you are blinded by ignorance and then craving find an easy way it can just take you wherever it wants because you can't see clearly you know, you can't see clearly so they work together craving and ignorance so now how do we uh, really attain this happiness on Nibbana before the end of the retreat. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> the Buddha said that I'm not going to teach impossible things. <laughs> when you talk about teaching wholesome and unwholesome, he said that what I teach is possible. We are going to go through this. One way is to practice Mindfulness, as we've been talking about, mindfulness of breathing. Mindfulness of breathing, of course, is really wonderful practice. It's like the Four Noble Truth. You can see right there in mindfulness of breathing, right there. I think somebody asked, asked Joseph, um, how can I see suffering in a breath? For me, that was a very interesting question because I had the first-hand experience of experiencing Dukkha in a breath. I tell you the story. I don't know whether I will finish even this talk, but anyway, don't mind. (laughs) So I was a scuba diving instructor in Thailand. I took three Danish guys on a night dive. And we had uh, 
like equipment like tank air and you have to breathe and I was this dive master so I told them not to dive in front of me they did they enjoyed a lot so they went in front of me on a night dive luckily it was a shallow one and then I was breathing in bring all of a sudden oof, no air I shoot up on the surface. I'm telling you, it was the most terrible thing. That was the first time I, th- I really experienced Doka in breathing. And I, I had to knock the tank because I'm, the, I'm their guide and, and it's night. <laughs> I don't want to lose them. So I flashed the torch like this, flashlight. I told them to come up. They say, what happened? I was really out of the breath. The first time I now I breathe again, it was so joyful. I was so happy to have a, a natural breath, you know. And I told them I've run out of air. I just borrowed this regulator. Uh, it was measuring. It was wrong measurement, you know. It was showing that I, I had air, but actually it was not uh, measuring correctly. So now I came to meditate and people told me to be mindful of breathing. I'm telling you, I remember very well the experience of Dukkha in the breath. So when I was practicing in the Burmese tradition, they tell you to be aware of the rising and falling of abdomen. I would breathe in and then breathing out. And the teacher would say, no, no, can you report on the rising and fall? More, more, what can you see? So I would extend my breath so that I can report more. I'm telling you, that was not a wise idea. <laughs> it was exhausting, a lot of energy <laughs> to really feel the breath, full breath. And then it, you release it. So I would feel the anxiety and the relief and the stress sometime. So I saw Doka in the breath. That's a, uh, in the first number, truth for me is very clear when I'm breathing, actually. It's very clear. But, of course, we have na- learned how to navigate our, with our breath. As soon as it becomes uncomfortable, breathe out like that. We have done it so many times that we may not even know that breath is dukkha. <laughs> we may not know that. And for me, I use always as an experiment people who say, Oh, Buddha, not suffering, there's no suffering. I say, Okay, good. One time, there's a Korean person in Bhavana Society. I gave a talk on the phone about truth. And then we took a walk. I wasn't a monk at that time. So we took a walk. She's, he, she told me, Band, I mean, Stephen, I was Stephen, my name. I don't like the, your talk on suffering. There is a lot of happiness. That's what she told me. I, I, I said, there is suffering. He said, no, there's no suffering. I said, okay. Let us stop walking. Can you breathe in? Breathe in, breathe in. Don't breathe out. I saw her experiencing suffering for the first time. <laughs> she told me, yes, you are right. <laughs> Another time I was teaching uh, in Pittsburgh. I was a monk, and there was a surgeon who came. He didn't have time, but uh, he carved out some time to attend my talk on uh, Anicca do Kanata. I asked, do you have any question? He raised his hand. 
He said, oh, you know, Bante, I understand suffering and non-self, but I don't understand impermanence. I say, are you right? He said, yes. I said, okay, now, let us experiment impermanence. I said, let us breathe together. Breathe in. I started breathing in. Don't breathe out. <laughs> I was seeing him really, really uh, uncomfortable. And I said, okay, now let us breathe out. <sighs> breathe out. I said, what do you think? Is the breath impermanent? <laughs> he said, yes, you're right. So sometimes we need to give experiments so that people get it directly, practically, not just through reading and all this kind of thing. So sometimes people say there's no suffering, but when you look at the breath, even when you look at Dukkha, Viparinama Dukkha, we see it clearly. We see clearly uh, changing. The breath is changing all the time. It's impermanent. And even Sankara Dukkha, which is the five aggregates, last time I led you into guided meditation, where we saw the breath is five aggregates, which is what the Buddha gave as suffering. It's a heap of dukkha. But when you look at the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, is actually we are craving to be alive. That's why we breathe. <laughs> we are craving to be alive. In fact, in my experience as a scuba diving instructor, and I ran out of air, I saw why I was breathing for the first time, because I could see suffering right there. So when we practice with the breath, as we pay mindfulness effort to understand the breath, from moment to moment, we can let go of our craving. As I talked about impermanence last time, we see the breath as impermanent and satisfactory, and we see selfless nature of the breath. All these things we can see clearly, and that's right understanding. The right intention, as you are full aware with the breath, uh, when you are breathing in, at that moment you have no hatred, you have no confusion, delusion, or you have no greed, at least that moment when you are full aware. So any time, of, uh, or less or any full awareness of the breath, for instance, is a moment of loving kindness. We may not say, these phrases, may I be well up and peaceful. But when you are fully aware, you can actually feel the absence of greed, hatred, and confusion. So you can say that in a moment of awareness, of mindfulness, is the moment of metta. And that's why even in the chanting, we say uh, in the chanting, as we practice metta, loving kindness, it's also a moment of mindfulness. So that's why loving kindness and, uh, and mindfulness shake hand there like that. So really we can see the freedom as we breathe in and out, mindfulness of breathing in and out, we can release the defilements, this temporary peace and happiness. We can feel in every breath, every single breath, if we are fully mindful, we can release our suffering, our defilements. And those are moments which we should not ignore. That shows you what will happen when we attain full Nibbana. Hmm? Have you had those moments in your practice? When you are fully let go, hmm? 
some defilements, a little bit, <laughs> and you experience peace. And those moments of peace, in one discourse, they talk about tadanga nibuto, tadanga, moment to moment, freedom, moment to moment freedom. So have you had those moment to moment freedoms? Maybe not. You have. And that shows you that, wow, what's coming is juicy. <laughs> that tells you exactly what's uh, final, how it's going to be, uh, how it's going to be in the final stages of, of Nibbana, or various stages of Nibbana, which we are going to talk about. Because these stages come with uh, the breaking of the defilements, which you call fetters, the ten fetters, we need to understand them. And to understand them, we need to refer to a discourse here, which is called mindfulness of six senses. I'm going to read from the Buddha's Buddha, uh, discourses. This is mindfulness of six bases, six sense bases. Again, because of practitioners, a bhikkhu abides contemplating mindfulness mind objects as mind objects in terms of the six internal and external bases. And how does a bhikkhu abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in terms of six internal and external bases? Here a bhikkhu understand the I, that's the internal base. The I, he understands the form, that's external base. And he understands the feta that arises dependent on both. And also understand how there comes to be the arising of the unreasoned feta. And how there, there comes to be the abandoning of the arisen uh, feta. And how comes to be the n- future non-arising of the abandoned fetal. So there's a lot there, <laughs> but we are going to simplify it. So a fetal <coughs> Pali word is samyojana is a mental defilement, kilesa, that we can compare to uh, hindrance. Hindrances are on a surface, showing up, and we can see them. But fetters are just like roots. We can see. If we use the tree, the analogy of a tree, we can see the leaves, branches, and stem, trunk, trunk, but we cannot see the roots. So fetters are just like the roots of a tree. They are latent, uh, dormant, just waiting for the opportunity to arise. So... Some of them, they carry the same name, like the, the hindrance, like ill will, doubt. But when it comes to a feta, it's called skeptical. So we are going to look at ten fetas and uh, be ready <laughs> for some kind of uh, information here. <laughs> when we bring in uh, this teaching on, 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 on the sense basis, I think it's better to really 
uh, illustrate it practically. Let's say you see this one, this stick, and the bell. So this were conditioned what call causality, dependent co-arising uh, come into play. A feta depends on me ring the bell like this. So here there is no feta in this stick, and there is no feta in this bell. What the feta, when let's say for instance you like the sound and you crave for sound like this, wow, I love this sound. I wish it keeps on ringing again and again. It reminds me of my past good times, going for a wedding and bells ringing. I mean, any association you have, craving for the sound. So craving is not here in the stick, and craving is not in the bell. It's dependent on the two things coming like this. So now, depends on what your craving is. For me, I love this bell. <laughs> I remember going to Japan, and I said, I'm going to get a bell. But it was very expensive. So the people who invited me, they bought one for me. And I took it to Uganda. It's just a small bell like this. But it rings so beautifully. It's, it's so beautiful. I, when you hear the sound, it's so good. I have to be careful not to get attached to that bell. <laughs> Very careful. <laughs> but once there is that attachment uh, to that bell, then that's a feta arising as craving attachment. And it's very interesting. Let us use another example of seeing. When I see you, and there's seeing consciousness arising, what we call seeing, and then after that there's what we call contact, there's feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, depending on, depending on uh, underlying tendencies, either greed, hatred, and uh, greed, hatred, delusion. Then after that, there's craving, and then there's clinging. So that's called dependent co-arising. But what's so, this is very, very important to remember. If we are not mindful, at every stage, there's going to be uh, some kind of problem arising. Let's say if I see, let's say, uh, for instance, as a monk, I'm not going to use seeing a beautiful girl. Or, sorry about that. <laughs> I'm going to use uh, uh, what you call rainbow. In fact, I remember I was in Australia. I saw a beautiful rainbow, two of them like this. I said, wow, I've never seen this rainbow, like two of them like this together. I ran to get my camera inside. When I came back, it had disappeared. I was so disappointed. I wanted to take a picture and show to my friends in Uganda, but it had disappeared. So now, when it came again another time, I said, wow, I'm craving to see it. I really crave to see it. And then there's attachment to my eyes. Hmm? There is also uh, craving to see. So at every stage is going to be really actually... Uh, kind of uh, causing that kind of fetus to arise. 
So what you have, you just need to remember that the fetter is not my eyes of craving. Is, is not, the fetter itself is not the eyes. It's not the, the rainbow, but it's the coming of the two. The conditions arising. That's when it arises. So we need to understand that in a context of uh, the instruction which the Buddha gave here is that uh, how we need to understand how there comes to be the future non-arising of the abandoned fetters. To know that, we need to know the four stages of enlightenment. And that's what we are going to go through. And I will tell you, according to the, according to the Buddha, how we abandon various fetters from time to time in our practice. In our practice of Vipassana meditation, during the retreat, we may not abandon them, but we weaken them. But also there's a possibility that you can abandon them. Why not? There's, it's possible. <laughs> but the practice is to make sure that we weaken them. So as you become mindful of the breath, you become aware of the cause and effect, uh, impermanence, you weaken craving, definitely. You weaken even this self-identity, it's called self-identity. Sorry about that. I need to take water, maybe. Self-identity. Okay, self-delusion, basically wrong view about the self. So every time we practice, actually, every time we're practicing, we are weakening it. Have you seen in your practice when you are practicing and there is no self? Hmm? Everything just going on smoothly? And then you start thinking about the end of the retreat and the self comes in. (laughs) Yes, I need to plan, I have to take a flight, I have to teach, I have to explain people how I've been meditating, it has been a wonderful retreat. So thinking, 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 I think there's a, someone who said that I think therefore I am, I don't remember. Yeah, thinking really brings in a lot of I, you know? No wonder in communication we say I, I, I do this, I do this, I do this, you know? That's why even the phone of phone now before it was phones now is iPhone. <laughs> it's mine. <laughs> it's myself. So the amount of investment we have done infused in objects it's just amazing. So that if that goes then the whole of our self goes. Really, actually, <laughs> if we say renounce your phone, give it to us, it's as if yourself is also going with the phone. <laughs> no wonder we do a ritual here so that it doesn't feel that way. <laughs> so the renunciation is kind of taken with grace, you know. Otherwise, really, we infuse our sense of self in objects, right? That when they go, we feel that also ourselves are going, you know. Yes. You know that. That's why I think the founder of iPhone was very smart. You get hooked when there's I. I hope they don't make eye robes. <laughs> that would be terrible. Eye robe. <laughs> this is my eye robe. <laughs> That's terrible. 
more, more infusion of self. Anyway, we need to practice so that as we are mindful of the breath, we don't bring in the sense of I. I am breathing. That's a beauty of actually this practice when we tell you just become aware of hearing. I'm hearing sound. I'm not hearing bell because a bell is a concept. <laughs> a bell is a concept. So then when I'm hearing sound, then the, that removes the eye. I'm the one who's hearing, uh, hearing all the time. You know? So this practice is beautiful. You can think about a bell. That's no problem. <laughs> but hearing, you're not hearing a bell. You're hearing sound. In fact, if it's in a vacuum, you won't be able to even to tell the vacuum. So let's see how we are going to slowly reduce our, our fetters. We reduce our fetters through the practice of, of course, as I told you, uh, abandoning wrong views of the self, like in a discourse, when somebody, when you have, you have a, a views like this, I have a self, I have no self, with the self, I, I perceive the self. With that which is not self, I perceive the self. With the self, I perceive that which is not self. With these views in, in, in the mind, one adapts, adopts, adopts the following views. This, this myself, which can think and feel. This is very important. <laughs> this is very, very important. Most of the time, we, we identify with this kind of situation, thinking and feeling. That's why it's very good to be aware of this at the moment of uh, when you practice mindfulness. So, which now here, now there, uh, experiences the fruit and of good and evil deeds. So this person will think like this. This self is permanent, stable, eternal, non-subject to change, and thus will eternally remain the same. So the beauty of the practice, uh, what we are doing here, we find out everything is changing. It's not permanent. It's not stable. Even mindfulness of breathing, breathing in, breathing out, is unreliable. It's not stable. Hmm? So that one will help, but you have to practice, not theoretically, like the way how it's given here, and just know it by listening, but uh, you have to know it experientially. Okay, the first fetter that we need to knock off, slowly by slowly, of course, is called uh, self wrong view, uh, uh, self identity view. We need to knock off that one through the practice of vipassana and samadhi. Both are needed. I tell you, both practices are needed. That's why we have the noble eightfold path. And the eighth path is called right and right concentration. So you cannot cut out corners, um, corners and say, "Oh, I'm not going to practice samadhi. I'm not going to get again concentration." So you need both insight meditation and concentration in order to really break through. So, uh, of course, the word sotapanna, that's uh, the, the attainment, the first attainment, which should be the aim of every person who practices meditation at least to gain the minimum 
sort of panda, but we are not going to give certificates, unfortunately. <laughs> I heard there's a place in, in Sri Lanka where you meditate, and if you gain sotapanna, they give you a certificate. But I don't know where you can present it. <laughs> no where you can present it. Anyway, you can at least uh, here uh, know exactly what it entails. Right? So this one, the word sota, you need to understand it. Sota means actually ear. No wonder people who attain that, uh, gain that attainment is their listeners. Most people are just hearing, 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 one word go here, through here. <laughs> but the person who has uh, uh, this wisdom and understanding, they listen what you, uh, what the Dhamma, basically. So now, this attainment of Sotapana, you have to know what the word, of course, Apana means to enter, uh, then uh, upon uh, entry. But uh, the second meaning is metaphorical, where we talk about a stream. Once you attain these things, you are destined. You, are, you really, you, you always attain a final awakening, Nibbana. So a stream is just going, not going in another, another direction, but going towards the end, so the stream. But for me, uh, the, the word that really makes sense to me about Sota is the Noble Eightfold Path. The, the Noble Eightfold path, Eightfold path is what Sota means. So if you want to attain stream entry, uh, uh, always practice the Noble Eightfold Path. Even in a breath, can you practice the whole Four Noble Truth in one single breath? Yes or no? I think yes. <laughs> I, I can give you some practicals here. <laughs> so you really have to practice the Noble Eightfold Path. You can't cut it out and say, okay, I'm not going to practice the Noble Eightfold Path. And you expect to attain uh, Sotapana. Because the word Sota means the Noble Eightfold Path. So that's what we are practicing here. The fourth noble truth. Since you came here, you've been practicing it. Since you came here. But of course, we've been giving different instructions, but all the instructions have been around that. Mindfulness, understanding, noting, this and that. So a lot of things that is to put you in that direction where you, you practice the noble eightfold path. So, uh, this should not be a problem for people who have some kind of experience of anatta. <laughs> because anatta, when you practice it, you slowly reduce your attachment to this view. The second sphater uh, that you need to overcome is called skeptical doubt. This is different from the doubt of whether I should pay attention to the breath, whether I should uh, practice choiceless awareness, whether I should practice with anchor, that's called doubt as a hindrance. Here, as a feta, is called skeptical. You are not skeptics, I'm, I'm sure. Are you? <laughs> skeptical doubts, I'm going to read it directly, what skeptics are. So, you'll get to know whether you are one or not. 
There are 16 unwise considerations. This is called skeptical doubt. I'm going to read them. Have I been in the past? Have I not been in the past? What have I been in the past? Are you ask- By the way, are you asking this question? If you're not, you're off the hook. But if you're still harboring these questions, <laughs> then maybe you have skeptical doubts. Mm. How have I been in the past? From what state into what state did I change in the past? Shall I be in, in the future? Shall I not be in the future? And those all are question marks, actually. Mm-hmm. What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? From what state into what state shall I change in the, in the future? Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? From what place or source has it come, this being? In what place or state will I go? I think our meditators are not asking this question. This is about past existence, future and present existence. I think you are very clear about it. <laughs> yeah, especially when you know dependent origination. Uh, I think that will be clear. There's some kind of dependent origination that I like very much that is really very practical. It's this one. When this is, that is. When this is not, that is not. When this arises, that arises. When this ceases, that ceases. So that cuts all across doubts about the past and present and future. There's even yet another one which is very interesting. Yeah, but maybe there's not enough time. But anyway, there's one which is very practical that I like very much. The teachers in Burma, they normally teach this kind of dependent origination, but it's very practical, very practical. It's knowing how the body conditioned the body, mind conditioned the mind, body conditioned the mind, and mind conditioning the body. So in your practice, you can see for yourself, let's say when you have a physical pain, what will happen with the body? When you have physical pain, you feel like sweating. That means the body is affecting the body. Let's say mind affecting the mind. When you have happiness, joy, uh, then concentration. So it's because you are happy, then you gain concentration. Then body uh, condition the mind. That's when you have, let's say, physical pain is physical. And then the mind is full of aversion. So you can see the connection between physical pain and aversion. Physical pain being physical and uh, aversion being uh, mind, belong to the mind. And mind affecting the body, that's when you have intention, intention to walk, and then you walk. (laughs) Actually, for me, it is very interesting to observe this, mind conditioning the body. One time I was uh, in my room there eating, eating, and then I had intention to go to the teacher's uh, meeting uh, room there, the staff place. By the time I reached there, I had forgotten why I've come to actually. <laughs> My intention had passed away. <laughs> I had to think very hard. Why did I come to the staff room? <laughs> intention to pick something. And actually, I went and picked it. So I could see exactly my intention, which is the mind affecting the body. So this is very practical in case you are not clear about dependent origination. It's very complicated. You remember I told you IRS? <laughs> Keep things very simple. 
just boil it down to direct experience how these links comes to be so now if you really know dependent arising so there's there will be no room for skeptical doubt there's no room for skeptical doubt then the third one's attachment to rites and rituals now attachment to rites and rituals is doing something uh, as a ritual thinking that it's in, in in itself is going to lead to awakening the buddha according to the his teaching we seem to be doing some kind of rites and rituals you see everybody coming here bow down something like that is it a rite and ritual are we attached to it or not but from a buddhist buddhist point of view whatever we do when it's connected directly or indirectly to the noble eightfold path which leads to awakening is not a ritual that we are attached to it will be a ritual and we are attached to that ritual if we think that in in itself can lead to awakening so for me when i bow down i see the four foundation of mindfulness really intention to bow down bowing down and then those things i told you about mind affect the mind body affect mind but i can see all those series so i use bowing down to practice the four foundation of mindfulness really as the body touches the the ground and then the intention and the gratitude so this is not a ritual and most people say why well, you buddhist you talk about rites and rituals monks keep 227 precepts is this not rites and rituals and rules hmm? <laughs> there's even one monk who complained he complained to the buddha that you let people you you say, let people attend the third, first level of enlightenment second level of enlightenment third level of enlightenment they enjoy their sense desires and for us monks why do you tell us not to enjoy <laughs> keep the third precept in other words abramacharya so really this person wanted to say monks also should enjoy after all they can attain when you enjoy <laughs> you can also attain the first level and second level and attain but of course monks keep different rules you know but also those rules are causes and condition as support the the word support and basis is very important here the practice of ethics moral conduct is a basis and support for attaining awakening that's how you should look at it otherwise people will think oh it's also rites and rituals so anyway once you break the first three fetters then you, you attain fully attain sotapanna that's the first level of enlightenment and according to the buddha that you, uh, once you attain this you have no more than seven baths to reach final enlightenment seven <laughs> and according to some teaching he said that once you attain the first level you have this much development left you know when he talk about putting the finger in the dust and he ask the monks what do you think is it the dust here on the finger or the dust around the world 
Oh, the monks say, oh, this dust is so little in the finger. A lot of dust outside. He say, you have this much left. Defilements to overcome. So when you attain this attainment, it's too bad that you don't go in the newsletters. <laughs> I mean, news, new, newspaper, New York Times. It would be wonderful to celebrate, actually, this, you know, <laughs> because you have this much defilement left before you attain final enlightenment. It's just wonderful. We go to the second one. The second one, we attenuate sense or greed, lesser greed and ill will. We don't abandon them altogether. We just weaken them. So this is called uh, once returner. So you are subject to birth only once more in a human realm before attaining full enlightenment. Yeah, weaken. That's fine. <laughs> you can weaken. We keep on weakening, you know. Yeah, weakening them slowly by slowly. The third one is called non-returner. You don't come back. You are subject to birth only once in the pure abodes before attaining enlightenment. Pure abodes are those existences reserved hmm, for those who have attained the third level of enlightenment because they have come, overcome all the five lower fetters. They have overcome greed, hatred. It will. Completely. Nothing is left. And lastly, is God full enlightenment. Full-blown enlightenment. Arahantship. Arahant. This one eradicates craving for a fine material existence. That means Jhanas, which like we, we have the first, second, and and uh, f- uh, second, third, and fourth jhana, they are material jhanas, and they have craving for that. Still, I don't think is a problem. <laughs> uh, then craving for immaterial existence, that means arupa uh, jhana, that means uh, formless jhanas, conceit mana. I think. Uh, you, uh, one of my colleagues gave a talk, I don't know who, but conceit is mana. It, literally, it means measuring. High, superior, inferior, and the other way around. But also measuring equal. equal. But these are very subtle, subtle forms of fetters, uh, defilements. They are not as gross as we are, uh, who have not reached there. The, the amount of comparing mind we have is amazing. You know, mana. Hmm? It's a good yogi. I'm not a good yogi. Has that happened to you? You compare. Wow, this person is walking wonderful. I remember I was comparing my walk to a, a yogi who was walking super slowly. And for me, I say, how am I going to walk like that? Really? But for us, has been bummer. Where they teach meditation like you are sick, you know. I mean, she had got the training when I got to learn that. For, but for me, when I arrived here in 1999, I said, I want to walk like that yogi. He's so slow, super slow, you know. Yeah, so comparing minds. Restlessness also is another factor that we need to overcome. But these are subtle restlessness, you know. When am I, 
when am I going to get there, you know, something like that. You know? Little bit of restlessness. It's not our restlessness we have, worried about the past and future and, and the omission and commission, what we did and all that. So this is just very such restlessness. And then ignorance is the last one. So those are called five higher fetters that a, five, a person who has attained the third level of enlightenment, they have to cut off and they attain full enlightenment. And those people are no longer subject to birth. And these are the questions that occupy the Buddha. I mean, during the time of the Buddha, people were asking, where does this person who has attained full enlightenment go? Does this person exist, don't exist, both exist and not exist, neither exist, no, no, not exist. So that's why the Buddha taught that this is not about existence and not non-existence. Everything is conditionally arising. And here the Buddha actually said that these questions don't apply. All the four questions don't apply. And then he said, when you blow out fire, does the fire go to north, south, west? Where does fire go? It's just gone. So, uh, when somebody who has attained uh, this arahantship, uh, who's an arahant, just gone. So, it's not about exist and not exist. But that you have to find out when you attain that attainment. I'm not going to talk more about this. You have to go there and let me know what happens. <laughs> let us sit for a moment or two. Take a deep, slow breath. Can you see in a single breath the three kinds of dukkha? That's the first noble truth that we need to understand the breath. Craving, also the second noble truth. And if we fail mindfulness attention, mindfulness effort to understand the breath, so we activate all the noble eightfold path because we're already uh, having right speech, right action, right livelihood. So all these kind of practices can lead us to let go our craving slowly by slowly, craving for sensual pleasures, craving for uh, non-existence, craving for existence. In other words, we can, every time we practice mindfulness, we over, slowly, we slowly, slowly reduce the fetters And we have those moments of release, freedom, happiness. May you attain Nibbana in this fair life. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.